But nevertheless, we're glad that you're here this morning. It's a beautiful day. It's a great day to be here to worship God together. It's nice that we finally had a a break from the summer heat. And whether you're here as a visitor today or whether you're a a member, I hope that the time we spend here together will be strengthening and and uplifting for all of us. Just a couple of, of sort of housekeeping notes as we get started this morning. Uh, First of all, Brother Taylor already mentioned in the announcements our homecoming that's coming up the last Sunday of this month, so do mark that on your calendars, October the 27th. A lot of times there'll be a guest speaker. There's no guest speaker. The elders decided to have me speak. I'm sorry. I know you have to listen to me 50 plus Sunday mornings out of the year already. If you have a problem with that, put a you know bug in their ear. Maybe they'll get somebody else next year and you won't be subjected to me at least for one week. But at any rate, make your plans to be here. Uh, invite your friends, invite family members, invite people who used to, to worship here to come back. And as he said, Uh, We're going to have barbecue afterwards. That's always a a good time, a time to visit with each other and to rekindle some old friendships. And we do need to bring desserts. So that's our part in this. The rest of the food is going to be provided, but make a dessert and bring it or uh, go pick something up and bring it. Everything else will be here, but we need to contribute that. And uh, I hope that you'll all make your plans to be here and be part of it. The second thing, if you haven't read the bulletin article today, I encourage you to do that. It's uh, just sort of another reminder and encouragement about the power of door knocking, which uh, again, thanks to those who participated in that last week. But we've also got a call to action in there because one thing we're going to be doing on an ongoing basis is every month we're going to try to visit as many new movers in our community as we possibly can. Uh, We've gotten involved with a program where we have access to that information and we want to go out and try to welcome them, tell them if they're looking for a church home, we'd love to have them come visit, take them a little welcome basket of goodies uh, as sort of a housewarming gift. So if you would be interested in going and visiting these people, if you would be interested in helping to put together those little baskets we want to do, if you would be interested in just uh, donating some uh, money or materials for that basket, whatever your level of involvement can be, we need you in order for this to be successful. I've had some people talk to me already about this. We won't get information on new movers again until the 1st of November, so we've got a few weeks to do this, but We need to get it organized, and if you can be a part of that, please come and see me and and talk to me so that we can try to get this program set up. It's no secret that our contemporary culture is becoming increasingly secular and less overtly Christian which is one of the reasons why I think going out and getting out into the community like that is so important. Sometimes this is described as a post-Christian society. That is that where once there was a framework of ideas and language and assumptions that were rooted in a, a pervasive Christianity that applied in some sense to basically everyone, 
our world is more diverse. And those sorts of commonalities no longer hold true for everyone. Just to give you a couple of examples, according to the Pew Forum's most recent survey of religion in public life conducted in 2014, 22.8% of Americans say that they are religiously unaffiliated. That's a significant increase from the previous time they'd done that in 2007 when only 16% had said that. Another group, the Barna Group, conducts a survey every year they call the State of the Bible. And in their most recent one, 2019, 48% of all Americans are what they call Bible disengaged. That is, it has little to no impact in their life. We can multiply these sorts of examples and statistics, but the point is a Christian worldview is no longer dominant in our culture. Now it exists in a marginal place. I don't want us to swing to the other extreme and get the idea that Christians are somehow persecuted in this country. We're we're not, thank God for that. But now Christianity is something that's more acceptable for you to keep hidden. It's something that it's all right for you to be, but that shouldn't be what defines your identity. We're supposed to be Americans first, or progressives, or conservative, or whatever descriptive you want to place there. Just not Christian. Be that in private. We don't want to talk about religion in public life. That needs to be shoved into a drawer, something that you keep secret and that you only bring out in your own home. Society no longer respects decisions about how we live or how we think or how we behave that are rooted in Christian presuppositions, rooted in religious norms, unless they align with views that are already popular in the culture. If your Christian view aligns with something that we already think is good, that's okay, but otherwise, keep it to yourself. In fact, for that reason, we've probably seen that a lot of religious groups are revising altering their ancient teachings and their practices so that they can fit in better with what is the current orthodoxy of the world. You can be motivated by human rights, by women's rights, by gun rights. You can use as a justification for your beliefs capitalism or socialism or humanism, or secularism, or pretty much any other sort of ism we might want to stick here to find justification for your views. But there's, there's one bedrock view of the world that's no longer acceptable for how you think and how you live. Because the Bible says so. <laughs> that's something that's passe. Of course, It's inevitable that some degree of tension should exist between Christians and those who have incompatible worldviews with Christians. And we should note that if Christians in this country have historically enjoyed pretty favorable treatment, that that's not always the case. In fact, that's a rarity over the long sweep of history, and we talk about it in the context of the wider world. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning, you look at the earliest Christians, it's good to remember that 
Christianity has always faced opposition. Jesus himself faced opposition. He was bitterly opposed by those who didn't accept his teachings. Like their master, Christians hold deep convictions on a lot of matters that make it simply impossible for them to see eye to eye with everyone out there in the world. And some sort of conflict then is inevitable. Let's look this morning at some of those early conflicts from the first century church presented to us in the book of Acts. And I want to begin in Acts chapter 4. This is shortly after the events of the day of Pentecost that brought the church into existence. And this is the first persecution that the disciples face at the hands of the Sadducees. Beginning in Acts 4 verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, that's Peter and John and the rest, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, if we skip down a little bit, they were placed in prison overnight. We come to the next day when the council met, down in verse number 18. They called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they'd further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. The progress of the early church was tremendous. It was phenomenal. Here is a little group without any privilege, without any prestige, without any power. And all they did was simply go around and tell about Jesus, who he was, and what he had done in clear and convincing terms. Their success was such that they rallied literally thousands of people to believe this message that they were bringing and to become Christians themselves. And that great success aroused jealousy from the Jewish establishment, and that jealousy led to persecution. Now, the root issue here was a clash of worldviews, of convictions. The Sadducees were essentially materialist, just like a lot of people in our world today. That is, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in any resurrection from the dead. In fact, you can see here in the text, this is why they were so upset. We read it a moment ago. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Or if you remember several chapters later in Acts, but when the Apostle Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin, he appeals to this same fact. He says, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, and it's because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm here before you today. The Sadducees have brought me in because I believe in the resurrection. You see, when the early Christians preached resurrection, that is that God was taking charge right here, right now. He was beginning his work, making all things new. And if that meant the old things are passing away, the Sadducees' time had come and gone, it caused them to launch 
this great persecution because that was a view that they just couldn't accept. It was, it was led by the high priest who was himself a Sadducee. The way of persecution is always the way of weakness. They couldn't counter the Christian's testimony about the things Jesus had done. <coughs> they couldn't counter their zeal. They couldn't counter their enthusiasm and their conviction. And so they resorted to persecution because they didn't have any other tool in their toolbox. But what they found is they couldn't frighten the Christians into submission the way that they wanted to. They could arrest them. They could imprison them. They could beat them. They could threaten to do even worse than that. But they couldn't stop them from going out and spreading the good news, preaching the gospel of Christ. As the church father Tertullian put it a couple of centuries later, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And so let's fast forward to the next chapter. Very shortly after the events we read about in chapter 4, we find a second persecution in chapter 5. In verse number 14, they continue to be successful in spite of this opposition. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So this is a repetition in a lot of ways of the previous experience, but everything's heightened. It's intensified. And we have the response of the apostles here at a greater length, more detail in this passage. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. This passage contains a challenging command. It's the one that's the title of our sermon this morning. Go and stand and speak. That is the essence of the Lord's challenge that he gives to all of us as Christians. The apostles were Christ's witnesses in a unique sense and in a sense that we can't repeat. They had seen Jesus with their own eyes. They had heard what he'd taught with their own ears. John talks about in 1 John chapter 1, and we've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him with our own hands. They knew all about this with firsthand experience. And so they went out and told all about those things. They were witnesses in a, in a literal sense. And they spread the gospel, the good news about Jesus, with the result that thousands of people came to faith in him. And as a result, a movement began, one that's swept down through the centuries and has changed the lives of multiplied millions of people all down through the years. You see, we as Christians have that same charge given to us today. Go, stand, and speak. We can't be witnesses for Jesus in the same sense that those first century eyewitnesses were, but we have their testimony left for us 
We can spread that. We can tell them what the apostles saw and what they heard. And of course, not only that, we can tell about the difference that Jesus has made in our own personal lives. Something that's going to be an individual story for each and every one of us. That same gospel proclaimed by the apostles in the first century has to be proclaimed by us if people across the world, people in our community, people next door, are going to be saved. And you notice that God has chosen human beings to proclaim the gospel. We might think that he could have chosen a a more effective method than that. Could he have done something more spectacular? Maybe. You know, sometimes I've heard people say, well, you know, we don't need to, we can't just rely on Scripture. If God would just speak to me, if the Lord would give me a vision, if he'd just talk to me from heaven, well, then I'd believe. I've heard people say things like that. Why does God want us to just rely on the Bible? But when I hear things like that, I think about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus the rich man down there in torment, and he says to Father Abraham, he says, send Lazarus back. If someone goes back from the dead, my brothers will believe. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to them, they won't be persuaded even if someone comes back from the dead. See, that's an excuse. People don't believe because they don't want to believe. God's entrusted us with this mission, and it's always been God's plan to use humanity with all of its faults, all of its failings, all of its imperfections. I think of what Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We think of Paul as this great man, but Paul says, I'm nothing. I'm just an earthen vessel, a jar of clay. The power is in the gospel. See, the power of the good news to change lives doesn't have anything to do with us. It's not about the messenger, whether that's Paul or whether that's Peter or John speaking here or whether that's you or me. The power is in the word. We could think about the parable of the sower. If you were here Wednesday night, we looked at this. The sower's nothing special. He goes and he scatters that seed wherever it falls. The power for it to bear fruit is in the seed itself, and the seed is the word of God. Or if you want to think about a more spectacular example, a story that we all know from the time that we're kids, David. When David went out to fight the giant Goliath, David was nothing but a kid. He was a small stripling shepherd boy and when he killed that giant everyone knew that that wasn't because of any great power he had that was God working in him and through him in the same way God has chosen to work through people through you and through me in spreading the gospel to show that the power is not about anything in us It's not about any eloquence that we have. It's not about any strategy that we might employ, some uh, method of taking somebody down a list of questions when we knock on a door. The power is in the gospel. 
Notice too, though, that in response to that, what we see in our text, immediately after they were challenged to go and stand in the temple and speak to this people all the words of this life, what did they do? They went right away. They went. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Morning found them there in the temple, right there in the most public of places, a dangerous place, doing what they'd been commanded not to do. Later that same morning, the high priest called the council together, and he's intending to bring the apostles in for examination. And when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. You can feel the consternation here. Greatly perplexed, wondering what this was going to come to. They knew that if word got out about this, they'd be the laughingstocks of the whole city. Can't you keep your prisoners in jail? What's wrong with you guys? I wish that Bobby Rader were here this morning because a few weeks ago when they had that uh, jailbreak, the way he spun that is he got up and announced, we have two fewer prisoners in the county jail now. Uh, and I suppose they could have taken that same sort of positive tack in doing this. But at any rate, they're pondering, what are we going to do about this? And a second report arrived. Someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. There comes to that serious accusation, I think one of those famous responses in all of Scripture. Peter's the one who gives it, but it says he's speaking for all the apostles. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This great rallying cry, another imperative, much like go stand and speak, we must obey God rather than men. That's another one that's just as applicable to us as it was in the first century. The problem with this world is that most people don't obey God rather than men. The world's in chaos because we've chosen to obey men rather than God. That's the source of all of humanity's problems when you get right down to it. If all people were willing to obey God, this world would be a much different place. I think about that this week when we've had some controversy about one of our conflicts in the Middle East and supporting our allies or not. And of course, that's just 
one more sub-conflict of something that's been going on for decades. If people were willing to obey God rather than men, we wouldn't have armed conflicts between nations with their tremendous cost in blood and in money. If people were willing to obey God rather than men, we wouldn't have the problems in this country with violence. We wouldn't have riots. We wouldn't have systematic injustice. We wouldn't have hate. On and on and on we could go down the list. It's the lust for gain. It's the lust for power. It's the lust for prominence. It's the lust to satisfy whatever fleshly desire I might have that leads to the problems we have in this world. Takes humanity down that road of suffering. We must obey God rather than men. And after the apostles had declared their allegiance to God, and after they'd preached this brief but powerful sermon to their captors, things looked pretty bad for them. They were in great danger, just to finish the story, because they were enraged, the Sanhedrin was. They wanted to kill them. That's verse 33. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And to summarize what Gamaliel says, he essentially says, if this is not from God, it will come to nothing. But if it is from God, you don't want to be found fighting against him. Gamaliel was the most respected rabbi of his day, and so he manages to quiet them. But I'm most interested in the way the story ends here, because the reaction of the apostles is very interesting. Down in verse 41, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They've been warned twice not to keep doing that. But here, even under threat of imprisonment, beating, perhaps even death, the Sanhedrin wanted to kill them, it says. We find them one more time carrying out that imperative to go and stand and speak. That's what stands out the most in this story to me when we look back at this, a, a clash of ideas, a confrontation of worldviews, much the same way that we all face in our modern society. The apostles were told, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. They were commanded to stand up and to be counted, to take battle stations, if you want to call it that, to fight on behalf of the cause of Christ, to be willing to speak up and to speak out about him. We too must be willing to stand up and to speak to others in this war for the hearts and the minds and the souls of people. We too are called to be witnesses for Christ. How are we doing with that? When have you talked to someone about Jesus? That could be knocking on someone's door and talking to them about him. Or it could be talking to your neighbor. Or it could be talking to a relative of yours who's an unbeliever. Or it could be talking to an old friend that's never come to faith in Jesus. When has your influence been on the side 
of Christ in trying to promote that Christian worldview. When have you heard atheistic or immoral or worldly ideas spoken about in your presence and said anything to counter them? And the truth of the matter, for most of us, probably all of us to some extent, we've been pretty timid about doing a lot of these things. Even though we want people to come to Jesus, we're afraid to tell them that. Even though we don't agree with those foreign ideas, we allow them to go by unchallenged. Our hope and prayer this morning is that we'll look to the example of the early Christians and we'll be inspired by them to have the courage to be witnesses for Jesus to those people in our lives. Let's determine not to stand on the sidelines in this contest, this battle of ideas, but instead to enter into the conflict on the side of truth, on the side of righteousness, on the side of the Lord. May we all have the courage to go and stand and speak, whatever form that may take in each of our individual lives. Maybe you're here this morning, you are a Christian, you haven't done that. I want to encourage you to to think about where your priorities lie and to try to recommit yourself to doing that. And if you need to do that in a public way or if there's any sin in your life you need to repent of, you have the opportunity to do that this morning. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. The same gospel call goes out to you that Peter preached to the Sanhedrin that while Jesus of Nazareth was killed, God raised him up, and now he sits there at his right hand, and that through him, his death, his resurrection, you can have forgiveness of sins. You can be right with God. You can have the hope of eternal life. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you this morning in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.